0: But before we start with today's message, I want to kind of go back and review what we've done and then give you an introduction to this message. The message itself is not going to be that long as far as the, the text of the message, but sermon may end up being longer than you may want. The, the situation is this, is that we started this study of the life and ministry of Jesus, the Messiah. Going back to the fact that his beginnings didn't start in Bethlehem. That he was God, is God, and he was the word and the word became flesh and that everything that was created was created by him and for him and he sustains everything. And then we took a look at his announcement. Conception and birth, and how he uh, came to be, if you will, fully human and fully God. And we saw, and not only in the announcement and conception of his birth, but then how others reacted to his birth. We saw angels announcing his birth to the shepherds and glorifying and praising God, and that the shepherds went to see him, and after seeing him, left praising and glorifying God and how during the dedication of this Messiah that an old man and an old woman recognized who he was and praised God. But then we also saw the reaction of the Magi who came from a far country to offer him worship and gifts. And then the opposite reaction, and also, if you will, last week's message could have also been entitled Searching for Jesus because the Magi were looking for Him and were led by a star. And then Herod searched for Him to destroy Him. Now we come to a passage that discusses Jesus' life before His public ministry. It's the only place in the Gospels that talks about Jesus as what He does and what He says. Everything up to this point has been what other people have said and done in response to His birth, but we have not seen Jesus' actions or words.
1: Now, in all of my years of being a church member,
0: I don't recall anyone ever having a message just on this passage. Now, I know I've done my own Bible study, and I've been in Bible studies, and we've talked about this passage, but I don't recall anybody ever cutting out a particular time. They may include it as a part of something else, but they include it as a part of something else. And, that, and I might be wrong. Somebody may have preached a message, which either means I'm getting really old and don't remember, or the message just wasn't that memorable. Hopefully, a miracle will happen and this message will be memorable. But as we come to this and we look at this, the Gospels are written for a couple of purposes. John makes it very clear that he writes the Gospel so that we might believe that He is the Son of God. The gospel is also written so that we might know not only that He is the Son of God and that He came to save us from our sins, but what He taught. Why? Because later at the end of His ministry, before He's taken up to heaven, He says, I want you to teach everything that I've commanded you. And so the gospels are there to teach us so that we might teach others what Jesus taught. We are, if you will, disciples. People will say that we are Christians, and I tend to walk away from that for a couple reasons. Number one, Christian means little Christ, and I fail him so miserably. I'm not all that looking like him, but I am his disciple. I'm I'm on the path to try to learn to be more like him. Also, in the sense of, if you're a Christian, you kind of have that sense of, I'm finished. Okay, I'm, I am who I am, a Christian. Whereas a disciple says, I'm still learning. I'm still working it. So I, um, I want to use as an example, martial arts. Now, it's obvious I look like a martial artist. I, at this point, I probably can't even tumble without hurting myself, okay? but I understand some of the philosophy of martial arts. And I think it's a really good uh, analogy to being a disciple. You see, in the martial arts, uh, you don't just learn a whole bunch of stuff. You learn from a particular sensei, that teacher, that rabbi. And he or she usually is in a line of other senseis who went back to an original person who developed all the techniques and moves that you emulate and copy to show. And others might do it a different way, but you follow your sensei, your teacher, in doing these things. There was, if you will, a, um, a woman who became a master in, in China, as a uh, martial artist who, because of an invasion of China, uh, sought to fight the invaders. And she developed her own techniques and, and fighting the martial arts. She would observe animals like snakes and lions and whatever, and she would develop her moves based on that. But she understood something. She had a philosophy behind her techniques. Her philosophy was this. I'm not bigger than most of my opponents. I'm not stronger than most of my opponents. I'm not going to be faster than most of my opponents. So I need to do something to, to accommodate those weaknesses. And her philosophy was, I'm going to be aggressive and take you out quickly. Now, if you've ever seen martial art movies there's a lot of action. They're fighting and they're fighting. And I and even commented, I think I, I saw one this week and I, I commented to my wife. I always think it's interesting in these martial art movies, the, the antagonist and protagonist and they're fighting it out. And usually the antagonist is just beating those snot out of the, the guy who's the hero, right? And after he's beating this not out of this guy, all of a sudden he finds somehow this inner strength, and he's able to defeat the guy who's just been beating him to a pulp. And I and I always wonder: go if you can't beat him in your best time, how is it that now you can beat him? So this particular master of China, this this woman said, "I don't want a long fight because I will lose a long fight." I'm going to take you out. So I'm either going to kill you quickly or incapacitate you quickly so that you're done. Jesus has, if you will, as he teaches us, certain principles. Unfortunately, the church and Christians have been given the idea that we have a bunch of rules. You're to do this and not do that, and it's a whole bunch of rules. You know, you, you can't play cards, you can't go to the movies, you can't dance. You got to go to church. You know, there's all these things you got to do, all these things you can't do. Jesus didn't teach a bunch of rules, he taught a bunch of principles.
1: Give you an example. Jesus said, It's not about
0: whether you work or don't work on the Sabbath, it's about doing good. And when you have the opportunity to do good, it
1: doesn't violate the Sabbath. So to use the martial arts aspect to Jesus, if you will, the world,
0: through anger or evil or whatever, seeks to punch you, you block it with love. You strike back in love. You love your enemy. You love your neighbor as yourself. You love one another as I have loved you. So Jesus taught a principle. It's not a matter of, well, do I do this or do, do I do that? It's, what do I do in love? It's not rules. It's principle. And so Jesus, as a boy... Before his public ministry, before we start taking on a whole bunch of things about what he teaches and doesn't teach, I think we miss something if we just blow by this narrative. Because I think it's instructive on certain things. And so it says this in Luke chapter 2, starting with verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. Right off the bat, it tells me something. And when he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast, and they were returning after spending the full number of days. Every year, Mary and Joseph went to Jerusalem. Now the law required only the men to go. To Jerusalem for Passover, but the family went. They were both doing above and beyond what was required of the law, but they was, as a part of their custom and action, was to go to Jerusalem at the feast of the Passover. They did so every single year in Jesus' 12 years. So we see that Joseph and Mary, along with Jesus, are observant Jews. Now, as observant Jews, it wasn't easy for them to go to Jerusalem. Now, most of us arrived here either of two ways. Some of you walked. Some of you drove your car. Those of you who walked probably didn't walk more than 100 yards. The rest of you drove your car. But when Mary and Joseph and the family went to Jerusalem, they left from Nazareth to go to Jerusalem, which was some 90 miles. It would take a few days to get there. They would then have to find places to stay for the full feast and then return 90 miles. You think coming to church is difficult. But they were observant. They took God's word seriously, and he said the males are to come every year at the feast of Passover. And so not only do the males come, but the family went merry as well. And after they returned, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. So he's 12 years old, and he's in Jerusalem alone. Apart from his family. But his parents were unaware of it, but supposed him to be in a caravan and went a day's journey, and they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. So they just kind of assumed that Jesus was coming home with them. They didn't double check. He's 12, he's old enough, he's whatever. And so at the end of the day's travel, which could be as far as maybe 20 miles, they determine Jesus isn't there. Now, if you've ever been a parent and your child is missing, you know the panic that sets in. I know it personally. I'll tell you a little story. Many, 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 many years ago when my son was probably 8, 9, 10 he was playing football, and he had a sleepover with some of the teammates. And that was on a Saturday night. And Sunday, I was having to go to Dallas to be a part of a annuity board meeting. And Kimberly, my daughter, was having a cheer competition. So my wife took her to the cheer competition. I picked up my son from the sleepover. Took him to my office to do a couple of things, and then was going to take him to uh, his mom, and I was going to catch my flight to go to to Dallas. Well, when we got to my office, he said, "Dad, I need to go to the to the bathroom." And in my office, it was a kind of a two-story uh, business condo-looking thing, and there was a bathroom outside the office comp uh, in the side the building, but outside the particular office. And so I thought nothing of it, and and he went. I did my few things, and I went out, and he wasn't there. Went to the bathroom, and he wasn't there. I went to the parking lot, and he wasn't there. And I began to panic and be extremely worried that some terrible person stole my son. And so I called, the, and I don't know which order, I know I called the church to ask for prayer, and I called the police. And in those intervening moments, I was so worried that someone had stolen my son. The police arrived. Now in my office at that time, there were two doors. There was a door where you would go in where the The staff and the attorneys would go in, and then there was a door where you'd have the reception area, and then you could go in. My office was down the hallway, and in kind of inside, there was another office, and then there was a library. Then there was an office, and there was a place where the secretaries and whatever did their work. And so all this time I'm looking outside, screaming Joe, screaming that he might hear me. And nothing. And the when the police arrived, I went to explain to them what had happened. And when I went through the door of the second door, where the staff was, you could look straight into the other office, and there was a couch, and there was my son laying on the couch, fast asleep. He never heard me, as he was so tired from the uh, the overnight. That he just and when my son goes to sleep, nothing wakes him. Not fire alarms, not anything. He was, he was dead to the world. Now, at that moment I could have been embarrassed because I called the police, I called the church and whatever. But I felt if my embarrassment was the worst that happened, I'll take it. As my son was never lost. Those were just a few moments, maybe a half hour at the most, of this desperation of not knowing where my son was. They went a day, assuming everything was fine, but now they're having to come a day back. And they're going to, as we see, spend a day looking for him. Can you imagine the panic that they must have felt? And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. So here we see the boy, 12 years old, Jesus, talking to those who would be the teachers of the scriptures, those who would be the priests who would be administering, And he's having conversation with them talking to them, asking questions, answering questions, and having, if you will, theological discussions. And we're going to see that they're amazed by him. And to a certain extent, we can understand why. But then at a certain extent, he was the one who caused the scriptures to be written. He was the one who was the I Am. He's the one who was before Adam. He was the one who was before Noah. He was the one who was before Abraham. He was the one before Moses. He was the one who told Moses the law. He was an original source. It wasn't a matter of what he thought about the law. He knew the law. And so they were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when they saw him, that being his parents, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, okay, they're they're taking it personal. Why did you treat us this way? Don't you know that we're going to be anxiously looking
1: for you? You're supposed to be with us. What's going on? His response? And he said to them, why is it that you were looking for me?
0: Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Jesus says, you're looking in the wrong places. Why is it that you're looking for me? This is where I must be. This is where God had called me to be. And first off, let me say that you'll hear people talk about, well, one is it that Jesus figured out that he was the son of God? He knew well before 12 years old. And he corrected his mother. Joseph's not my father. I'm in my father's house. Joseph is my step-parent. He's my guardian. He cares for me. He is a parental figure. But my father is the God of this house.
1: There's no guessing. There's no wondering. He knew who he was.
0: And then he tells them, this is where I must be. So if you're going to look for me, look where I'm going to be. There are a lot of people who will justify not coming to church by saying, well, I can worship God in the mountains. Or I can worship God at the beach. And yes, you can. Even the scripture says that the heavens declare the glory of God. And we can go to the mountains and see their majesty and praise God. But I suspect those who say, I can go to the mountains and worship God, don't go to the mountains to worship God. They go to the mountains to ski. And when they go to the beach, they don't go to the beach to worship God and to see His power And his might and his expanse. They go to their surf or just lay on the beach and relax and,
1: and get a tan. They're not really looking for God. The best place, and I'm not saying you can't find God out there,
0: but the blessed face, the best place to find Jesus is in his Father's house. And that's, guess what? Gang
1: is here in any other Bible-believing church. Well, I want you to think a moment. When we think about coming to church, and
0: what a difficult ordeal that is, and that we're tired, and whatever. It kind of reminds me of the, of the, of the story of the, of the 45-year-old man who was sleeping on Sunday morning in his mother's basement. There's a problem in and of itself. And his mother comes to him and says, why aren't you up? You need to go to church. And he goes, I don't want to go. She goes, why not? And he goes, I have three reasons. None of the people down there like me. I don't like any of the people down there. And they're all hypocrites. She goes, you're going to church and there are three reasons. He goes, what's that? And he goes, number one, I taught you to go to church. Number two, you're living in my house, and the rules are you go to church. Number three, you're the pastor. All too often, we think it's all this difficulty to go, quote-unquote, to church. But what if we started thinking of it as our Father's house? That we're coming because we, not that we
1: should be here, but that we must be here. Because it's my Father's house.
0: But they did not understand the statements which he had made to them. Just because Mary knew that she gave birth as a virgin, and just because she knew that this child was different, and just because all these people were talking about him being the Messiah, doesn't mean she understood totally what God's plan was. And even when she knew, like us, when we know what God's plan is, sometimes we don't get along with the program
1: she did not understand the statement which he had made to them. Now notice that Jesus has told us that he knows he's the Son of
0: God. But Jesus is going to teach us by his actions something. And that's why I'm spending this message on this particular
1: passage. You see, Jesus taught several different ways. He would teach by sermon. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. He would teach by miracles
0: and perform signs and wonders. And He would teach by action. So, for instance, He taught us that we are to love one another as He has loved us. And then He demonstrated that love by hanging on a cross for us because we needed redemption and salvation, and His sacrifice was the only way for us to get it. He taught us love in action. Not just words, but action. He's going to teach us something by action. Verse 51. And he went down. Now down, they're going north, but Jerusalem is higher up. Than, so he went down with them and came to Nazareth and continued. This isn't okay from now on. He continued in subjection to them. Now, here's a 12-year-old. At about 12... 12-year-olds think they know everything. 12-year-olds think their parents don't know anything. It's usually not until about maybe 25 that they start getting a clue that their parents know something. Jesus not only thinks he knows more than his parents, he does know more than his parents.
1: Not only is Jesus... their child, if you will, but He is
0: the Son of God. One that they should be worshiping. One that they should be paying attention to. But notice it says that He continued in subjection to them. But wait a minute, I have a much higher status than you. Jesus is the Son of God. How much higher status is that? But you know, Pastor, my parents don't have a clue. They didn't know what he was doing. But he continued in subjection to them. And the Scriptures teach us that we are to be subject to one another. The, parents, the Bible talks about being subjected to our parents. The Scriptures talk about us being subjected to authority. It talks about a number of places where we are to be submissive to things. And Jesus, at 12 years old, teaches us a valuable lesson.
1: It's not about you. It's about him, and he's teaching us. When
0: God gives you somebody who's in a position of authority, you submit. Not because they're better than you, not because they're more knowledgeable than you, but because God had placed them in that capacity for that reason if anybody had the right to say i don't have to listen to my parents would have been jesus
1: but jesus continued he didn't start he continued in subjection to them how awesome would the house of god be when we came
0: and assembled ourselves together, that not only did we know each other, not only did that we loved each other, but that we were more concerned about each other's needs than our own.
1: Well, you see, when I go to church, they never talk about anything I'm interested in. It's not about you.
0: Well, when I go there, Nobody knows my name. Well do you know other people's names? Are you serving them? Are you submitting yourself to them? But it's not fair. Tell me about fairness. Jesus never talked
1: about fairness, talked about love, talked about action, talked about being submissive
0: Now if you have teenage children or children that are about to be teenagers and they didn't hear this message, you might want to have them listen. But you know who needs to hear it more than
1: our teenagers? Us. Because I need to submit to my
0: Father much more, and not just my Father's in heaven.
1: I'm talking about my Father in heaven. And we need to learn not just receiving love, giving love not
0: just expecting honor, but submitting ourselves to
1: one another in love, in grace, and in preference. A 12-year-old, as Jesus will later say, out of the mouth of babes, out of the mouth
0: and out of the actions of our Lord, Even
1: as a child, he teaches us things that we need to know. And so, yes, we learn that he knows that he's the Son
0: of God. Yes, we learn that he is doing what God wants him to do by being in the house of God.
1: But we also learn in this passage the King of kings and Lord of lords, midst, even to lesser beings. And if he did so, then we should as well. Understanding that we
0: have a good, good father. And then even if the world doesn't acknowledge and appreciate our submission, and even if the church of God's people don't understand our submission, He
1: does. And your applause and your praise is temporary.
0: But my Father, who I hope to hear someday, well done, thou good and faithful slave, That's a praise that will last in eternity. Because I'm not your disciple and you're not my disciple. We are the disciple of Jesus, the Lord of Lords and King of Kings and the Messiah. And we've come to assemble ourselves in his house to praise Him and to learn about Him and to be like
1: Him. It may not be in particular moves, but as the Scripture says, to stand firm, prepare, to know and to do and to be like Him. So that we may continue be in his house, to learn more of him, and to praise him
0: because he is worthy of that. And all God's people said.
2: Oh, I've heard a stories of what they think you're like, but. And whispers of love, the dead of night, that you're pleasing, i never.
0: from Psalms 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good news, with good things, so that your youth is renewed like eagle's.
2: Fall, but you would just do. get to open, in the blindest place tonight, if you have so say, I see the world in light. i